This PBS NewsHour podcast is supported in part by Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. Their scientists played a substantial role in developing more than half the cancer drugs approved by the FDA in the last five years. Dana-Farber Cancer Institute is changing lives everywhere. Find out more at DanaFarber.org slash everywhere. As Ukraine marks two years of war with Russia, American support for aid in the country, to the country rather, is wavering along partisan battle lines. On that and the other political stories shaping the week, we turn now to the analysis of Brooks and Capehart. That is New York Times columnist David Brooks and Jonathan Capehart, associate editor for The Washington Post. Great to see you both. Yeah, nice to see you. Let's start with Ukraine. Uh, Russia's war, David, as you know, now moving into its third year there. Russia's clearly gaining momentum on the battlefield. Lawmakers here in the U.S. are unable to move through aid. Mr. Trump is now telling Republicans not to back that aid. If the Ukraine war was supposed to be this test, right, of Western democracies coming together, showing their strength against a rising autocracy, are we failing that test? Uh, well, we're on the verge of it. You know, if you had told me two years ago that uh, Europe would be united and strong and in support, even though they were so dependent on Russian energy, and that we'd be the faltering ones, and the, that the faltering ones within our country were Republicans, <laughs> Wouldn't have believed you. Didn't see that coming. It seemed like it was a, universally accepted that defending Ukraine was in our national interest. Even today, 74% of Americans think defending Ukraine is in our national interest. And yet the president or the ex-president um, said no, and the speaker apparently follows him. Uh, and to be fair, uh, you know, in retrospect, we should have been clearer that the Russian strategy in war is to go on forever and ever and they're willing to sacrifice casualties that would destroy most other nations. Mm -hmm. They did it in the Napoleonic Wars. They did it in World War II. They're doing it in Ukraine. And we should have been clear the time wasn't on our side. And the Biden administration was undoubtedly too slow to get the weapon systems. They gave them enough not to lose, but not enough to win. But it's the small rump isolationist majority, the J.D. Vance's of the world, that threatened to really send the world into turmoil. And they say, oh, no, we need to focus on China and Asia. Well, talk to the Chinese, talk to the Taiwanese. What are they worried about? They're worried about Ukraine losing. And so this is the doorstep to chaos, and a large part of the Republican Party doesn't care. Jonathan, to David's point there, House Speaker Johnson is listening to former President Trump here, right? But he's also, he's facing a looming government shutdown. He's trying to oversee one of the smallest House majorities in congressional history. Is Ukraine aid top of his priority list right now? No, top of his priority list, Speaker Johnson's priority list, is remaining Speaker. I mean, we are right back where we were with Speaker McCarthy. Only the difference between Speaker McCarthy and Speaker Johnson is, and I can't believe I'm saying this, Speaker McCarthy knew what he was doing. He could actually, he could govern haphazardly and haltingly, but he, he could govern. He kept the government from shutting down. Mm -hmm. Speaker Johnson has... Ukraine, Ukraine aid, which is vital to, as David was talking about, vital to the national interest. He's got to get through two funding deadlines, March 1st and March 8th. There's an immigration bill that he says, he, he, his own, that he wants to get through after rejecting the hard-fought bipartisan Senate immigration bill. Um, th this is a person who is woefully unprepared and inadequate for the task that faces him. And when it comes to this, this you know, battle between democracy and autocracy, where it is vital that Ukraine win, if they do not win, we will, we will be able to look back and point the finger right at Speaker Johnson, because it's Speaker Johnson who is the one who's getting in the way 
of something happening on multiple fronts. You agree with that, David? Yeah, I'm, I'm a little ho hopeful that something will get passed. There are a bunch of different ways you can do it. They, they're thinking of breaking all the different aid pieces apart. Mm -hmm. There's this thing called the discharge position, or if you get a majority of House members signing this petition, you can get a vote on something. You still need a number of Republicans. You need to get a that number of Republicans. But if it's saving democracy, I think there'd be a no. You don't have to get a lot of Republicans. You just got to get a few, and then you can evade the Speaker and get a vote. And it, if it got a vote, it would pass for sure. Hope brings eternal. I'll take that. I do want to ask about the other issue raised on, on immigration in particular, and as it relates to President Biden and his reelection campaign, we heard Laura Brown Lopez's reporting there on some weakening uh, among the Biden coalition and core groups there. And we know, David, that President Biden is now weighing some very harsh immigration tactics through executive action at the U.S. southern border, reminiscent really of some Trump era policies. So, does it make it harder? for the president as a candidate to draw a bright line between himself and his likely general election opponent, former President Trump, when he's coming out with some of the same policies. Yeah, on this issue, uh, Joe Biden does not want to draw a bright line. The country is with Donald Trump. You know, if you ask who do you approve on different issues, on general competency, Trump is up by like 12 points. On who can handle the economy better, Trump is up by 25. On immigration, he's up by 39 points. Mm -hmm. And so this is an issue where you want to fudge that line. And just on the merits, you know, I'm as pro-immigration as I think it's possible to be, but our asylum system is meant for people seeking asylum, escaping repression. And a lot of the people coming across the border are coming across the border for a lot of the reasons, you know, my ancestors came across. They want economic opportunity, but that's not asylum. And so the system is somewhat broken down, and Biden is right to do something, and politically, I do think his survival depends on it. Do these kinds of moves, Jonathan, further alienate members of that Biden coalition that helped get him to the White House in the first place? Well, I mean, that you sort of answer the question. Yes, it, it, it does further alienate. But, you know, I mean, I, I have to agree with David on this, that immigration is an, is an issue that the president has to fudge this line. Um, but what I also think he has um, going for him is he gets to say, the Republicans made me do this. There was a bipartisan Senate immigration bill that um, never got a vote. I was in on the negotiations. They never gave us a vote. And so we have to do something. And, you know, the election of Tom Swazi in uh, on Long Island, gosh, was that a week and a half ago now, almost, almost two weeks ago, was a signal of how salient the immigration issue is. Meanwhile, David, here is what Mr. Biden could be up against. Uh, from the annual Conservative Political Action Conference, or CPAC as it's known, um, there was a moment when a far-right conservative uh, commentator, a man named Jack Posobiec, uh, took to the stage. He was holding up a cross, and he said this. Welcome to the end of democracy. <laughs> we are here to overthrow it completely. We didn't get all the way there on January 6th, but we will, we, we will endeavor to, forget, to get rid of it and replace it with, with this right here. He's holding up a cross there, as he says, replace it with this. This was uh, met with cheers from the crowd there. But, David, how do you look at that? Was that, was that meant to be a joke? Yeah, it's meant to be. I mean, there's a game. Uh, Right-wing commentators of that sort play. They get, they say something that offends the left, and then they could say, "Oh, the left hates me," uh, and then they get popular in their own crowd. And so it's a form of performance art to shock the bourgeoisie. And I, I take it with utmost cynicism that they are just trying to get attention. And this kind of humor is shock the left, and then the, I've owned the libs. So I, I think it's, it's like crass, stupid. Do I think it represents the thousands of Trump voters I've interviewed? No, none of them would talk like that. They're all serious people who have serious views that I happen to disagree with, but they're not like what that kind of guy at CPAC. Jonathan, what do you make of that? 
Um, this is one lib who's shocked. <laughs> um, and I don't, think, I don't think that those types of things are funny. And I don't think they're funny in the context of what we're living through right now. Alabama Supreme Court and what it did on IVF. Um, Supreme Court overturning Dobbs. Um, a, a House speaker who's enthralled to a former president who is preventing him from doing anything that would help move the country forward on a whole host of issues. And I've been around Washington long enough to remember that that is the same crowd that was railing against, oh my God, Sharia law is coming to the United States. You know, it's a religious theocracy taking over the American government. But it's okay if it's Christian nationalism, or let's just be more blunt about it, white Christian nationalism. I'd, I take what they say there at CPAC, even though it is sort of a, a, a Looney Tunes cafe, I, but I take them seriously because their guy is a front runner for the Republican nomination for president and, and has a 50-50 chance of being the president. So that joke can become reality. So let's take a quick look at the context in which this is unfolding. Here's a look at the delegate count right now for former President Trump and the lone challenger uh, to him for the Republican presidential nomination. That is uh, former Ambassador Nikki Haley. We see there Mr. Trump has 63 delegates to Nikki Haley's 17. They need 1215. One of them needs 1215 to clinch the nomination. David, the South Carolina primary is tomorrow. What, what are you watching for? What do you believe will happen? Yeah, I'll be curious to see if Haley can climb up to, to the 40s. Can get, I think her campaign has said that 42 constitutes success for them. Uh, and that would be a nice lift. It would make her feel good. And she can go on Super Tuesday and then get crushed and then uh, drop out of the race. But either way, we know how the story ends. It ends with her dropping out of the race. Jonathan, how are you looking at this? Um, look, I go back to the great James Pindle who said they don't get out because they lose, they get out because they're broke. She's got the money, she'll, she'll lose South Carolina, she'll go to Super Tuesday, she'll, as David says, she'll get crushed there. But I do think, in the grand scheme of things, she is doing a service to the party and to the country by finally speaking truth about Donald Trump and what he means for the Republican Party, but also what he means for the country and for democracy writ large. Jonathan Capehart, David Brooks, always great to see you both. Thank you so much. Thank you.